Greetings. In this episode of the Freedom Plow, we look at radical self-care and blacks in the academy. Our guest, Dr. Julia Jordan-Zachary, is the chair of the Department of Africana Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She is the author of numerous publications, including Shadow Bodies, Black Women, Ideology, Representation and Politics, and a 2019 co-edited volume called Black Girl Magic Beyond the Hashtag. Much of her work inside and outside the classroom has focused on work-based trauma, impacting African-Americans and women, and radical self-care. A link to her webinar on self-care can also be found at our website. What is self-care and then what is how does self-care care different from what you have termed radical self-care? So I think that they are at least two different forms of self-care. One that's kind of grounded in a very capitalist, basically Eurocentric type of approach um, in the sense that it's, it's individualistic. So you go inside in order to come back out, right? Um, and I don't have a problem with that. And so that looks different for different people. It could involve pedicures and manicures, you know, spa treatments, etc excuse me and i'm not you know suggesting that there's anything wrong with that but when i look at black feminist writings particularly like the work of audrey lord and her work on the uses of the erotic that to me suggests a different notion of self-care and what i call a radical form of self-care even though i'm a little bit cautious of using that term radical because we seem to put it you know attach it to different terms and then assume that there's something inherently different and what I get from reading Audre Lorde, the uses of the erotic as a separate work, but also in concert with the plethora of work that she's left for us, is that radical self-care is about truth, right? It's about really tapping into um, the sacredness that we're all born with in order to find our truth and then living that in all areas of our lives so living it in terms of our work whether it's community work you know paid work mothering work any combination thereof <clears throat> and so the work then takes on a different a different meaning in our lives so self-care radical self-care is about finding that truth that then leads us to living a, a deeper sense of meaning, which I don't think that we can necessarily get if we only do the pedicures and the manicures. They make us feel good and they're important, but they don't necessarily lead us to truth and meaning, which is what she talks about quite a bit in her work. And, and your argument too is that I know that in in some in the last couple of years, some conservatives have tried to grab on to self care. Mm -hmm. to deny, for example, resistance movements, the mm -hmm. idea of challenging structural inequalities. So your argument is also distinguished from that kind of conservative cooptation of self-care as well, correct? Right, yeah. exactly. Because, again, coming coming to the work done by, by um, black feminists, whether they're in the academy, outside the, the, of the academy, or straddling both, excuse me, is that once we get to our truth, once we get to that deep, deep part where we are living our truth, then we're able to have a different interaction with oppressive structures, 
right? Because we, we have a deeper understanding of what it means to be not on the margin as defined by them, but we begin to define our work in terms that are honest to us, that are aligned with us, right? And so it brings us to this notion of community, which I think a lot of people miss when, again, coming back to Audre Lorde, where she talks about being in relation, right? And self-care should help us be in relation, be in relation to structures, be in relation to each other in different ways that aren't necessarily defined by Western ideology of what it means to be in relation. Mm -hmm. And so how would, why, why do you think self-care is important for, and I'll, and I'll talk particularly for blacks in the academy, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so one could argue, make this argument, um, again, I don't, I don't agree with this argument, one could argue that um, maybe those of us in the academy are in, engaged in intellectual work, um, um, non-blue-collar non labor, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. um, and thus, why would why would academicians, particularly African Americans, need self care um, versus, say, for example, someone who is working on a factory line or someone who's working in a low wage service job? What is it that self care brings to those of us in the academy that that is important? Mm -hmm. Well, I think self care is important for everybody, and I wish that we had a different language other than self care. Yeah. You know, and that's something that I'm grappling with. So what do you call this? And, you know, there's a part of me that calls it um, my sacred self, which moves it beyond this definition that sometimes is imposed on, on what we need. And so coming back to your question around why do black individuals who opt to work in the academy need a type of self-care, and a particular kind of radical self-care is that it helps us to manage the relations that we or how we are in relation to structures that basically try to purge us mm -hmm. right and sometimes violently and i don't think that people can sometimes grapple with <clears throat> what it means to constantly day in and day out encounter structures and policies and practices individual behaviors institutional behaviors that are trying to purge you right um, <clears throat> of the other reason i don't use the term microaggressions because it doesn't quite capture what many of us experience and so when i'm talking about an institution that tries to purge you it tries to do that on multiple levels it tries to do that on a physical level because sometimes some of us encounter um, actions of, of individuals that are literally trying to physically get rid of us but it also tries to purge us in terms of our intellectual contributions and if we are here for intellectual contributions to be constantly um, up against this very rough structure that tells us our intellectual contributions don't matter Right? What is actually happening is that the, the structures are, 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 are 
you know, um, I write about this quite a bit recently, the structures are engaging in a type of soul murder. So we're engaging in soul murder when we come to work, we're experiencing soul murder when we leave work, and so it's just constant, constant type of friction um, that requires a type of resistance. Right? And so for me, radical self-care, then another element of that is that it affords us a lens through which we can resist soul murder. And is that is that particularly unique to Af- African Americans in political science or, or so rather African Americans in the academy or people at the margins or is or is that also the same kind of experience that you might find uh, kind of a white middle class male um, who may experience that or is that is there something about being an African American in the academy, particularly in a hyper competitive environment, um, that requires a kind of radical self care that's different than say a middle class white male coming to the academy. I I would argue that um, positionality matters, identity matters, and so uh, I'll give an example. I have colleagues that. Um, are quote-unquote allies and one of them said to me this recently he said I don't live this day-to-day I pick it up when I choose to and I put it down I don't have that luxury Mm -hmm. (laughs) right Mm -hmm. Um, I have been personally I've been assaulted by students I've had a student throw things at me spit at me call me a black fill in the blank (laughs) you know um I have had faculty members, white male faculty members, engage in intimidating um, behavior. Now, one could say that those behaviors could be experienced by anybody in the academy, but we have to think about how race and gender, and in my case, immigrant status, comes together to tell people that they have a right to treat me in a particular way. Mm -hmm. Right? And that is something a white male colleague will not experience because if they're assaulted they're not going to be assaulted in a way that brings together their race and gender mm-hmm. so um given that experience that you just had that you just described and the concept of, of radical self-care of how does how does one respond to that kind of aggression using radical self-care on a day-to-day basis i, I remember an experience i had um as a as a first year professor here at my university and a student made me so angry that the next morning I was driving and I almost got an accident literally and and the guy almost got an accident cussed me out and so that one interaction which involved cuss words student was cussing at me that one interaction literally threw my entire day day off my entire night off and it just it just kind of um uh messed up my equilibrium that makes any sense so how does how does one deal with with um, just on a day-to-day level of dealing with that kind of uh, micro, uh, you don't like the word microaggression, but dealing with that those kind of pressure points. Right, those attacks. Let's call them attacks, right? Tax. Because they are. Okay. And 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 there are different levels of attacks. I don't. I wouldn't say that every attack is is the same, but every attack is literally like a tap dripping on a rock, right? Over time, the water is going to keep dripping, but the rock will erode. Mm -hmm. And this is why we need to guard our spirits so that we aren't eroded. 
so that we do not fall victim to soul murder. And I think that there are different ways that we can guard our spirits when we enter into these spaces. Okay? So one of the questions that I'm constantly asking myself is, how do I want to be? Mm -hmm. I cannot change this environment, but there are some things available to me that allows me to determine how I want to be in relation. Because to me, this is what self-care is all about. It helps us to get to the point where we're asking, how do we want to be in relation? How do we want to be in relation to our work? And so I always say to myself that if, if we think about responses almost like a number line, then we have a range of responses. And part of our response might be to remain quiet excuse me part of our response might be to meet that person where they are okay right we have an opportunity I believe and this is where our power lies to determine how we want to be and if we're making a conscious decision about how we want to be and it's and it's our truth it's our, it's part of our sacred self which is where our minds our bodies and our spirits come together to make us who we are if our responses are coming from that place then to me that is a form of resistance mm-hmm. okay. and it's the right response for you and each situation the response is going to be different okay I always say the first response is always to protect yourself. Protect your physical self, protect your spiritual self, just protect yourself. Right? Do what you have to do to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? So, believe it or not, one of the ways that I guard myself from from what we what I encounter as a black woman is I'm intentional about what I surround myself with so in my prior office believe it or not I had an altar I had I literally had an altar in my office I surround myself with images that remind me of who I am and the possibilities of who I can be okay I ask myself constantly, why am I doing the work that I'm doing? Who is it for? Is it simply work that's being consumed by the academy? And if I approach a project from that perspective, I choose not to do it because it's not my truth. But is it a body of work that's related to the communities that I am particularly passionate about? then it is work that I want to do. Okay. Okay? And that's what I mean about guarding ourselves by making these types of conscious decisions about how we want to be in relation. Okay. Do, um, as some of your previous work, and I'm going to link this podcast to a a webinar that you conducted for Ideals for Change. Um, you talked about developing a freedom box. Do do you remember that? Uh And as maybe as a way to to help one navigate the the academy or navigate their own personal life. So describe what you mean by that, what that means, and why that's useful. Mm-hmm. 
So a freedom box can be a literal box or it can be virtual. And it's that place where I put all the things that matter to me, whether it's a symbol, it's an image, it's a word, um, but it grounds me. So my freedom box is literally that thing, that collection of things that ground me in my truth so that if something happens that threatens to push me off center, I can literally come to this box, open it up, and be reminded. Okay. Right? That I have the right, and this sounds superficial, but I have the right to understand how I want to be. I have the right to choose how I want to be, regardless of the context. Mm -hmm. Right? So sometimes that freedom box has led me to, you know, in, in the middle of something that I determine is not good for me. And I'm able to, and this is not always available, but to physically leave. If I can't physically leave, then I ought to leave um, mentally. Right? Because in that moment, that's what I've decided is good for me. That's what I've decided I need to do in order to come back the next day. Okay. Right? And so right now, I actually have a jar. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um... And the jar is just a collection of things that matter to me. Okay. And they're personal, they're communal, they're historical, there's an imagination of the future, and they're in this jar. Okay. Um, you, you've also mentioned something that was interesting, um, and you said that I think, you know, as a political scientist, it's important as part of this radical self-care to reach outside of one's discipline and develop, if I'm not mistaken, the need to have interdisciplinary conversations and linkages. Um, at least at least that's what I gathered in, in the webinar that you conducted. Um, at the very least, I think you've, you've talked about the need to reach outside of one's kind of parochial um, academic discipline into some spaces, whatever those spaces may be, that can give one more breathing room and more more um, perspective. Um, describe that and why you think that's perhaps important for um, radical self-care. Mm -hmm. So I think that we need to create our lives, think about our lives as a tapestry, right? Or, or a quilt even. And probably a quilt is better. And we don't make a quilt from only one square. A quilt is made of different patches that we bring together and it's stitched together and it's the stitching that holds it together, right? And so the stitching of our quilt is our truth. And what we need, I would argue, are different relationships that feed different parts of us, right? Not all of them have to be serious. Sometimes it's just a fun opportunity. Um, but I think sometimes isolation in the academy, I mean, this is well documented, right? The academy is particularly isolating. And it's even worse for people of color, um, for black people in particular, since we're talking about black folk, oftentimes we find ourselves as the only one the only one on the floor, the only one in the department, the only chair of, uh, you know, black chair at a meeting out of 20 something people and, and the only one, the only one, the only one. 
Um, some people aren't bothered by that, but what we know from psychology is that isolation can take a healthy person and make them unhealthy. Okay. Right? So the psychological literature tells us that. So how do you begin to balance that isolation where you're not the only one? It is to create a, a, a patchwork of support networks. Okay? Mm-hmm. I always say most of us need at least three people in our lives. We need somebody that's younger so that we can see where we've been and we can help them on their journey. We need somebody up here, somebody close to our age, uh, and we need somebody older so that we can see where we're going. We need at least three people in our lives. And that could be your inner kind of sanctuary. But then we also need other people around that. And we can get those in different ways. So you might have a writing group or you might have a church group or, you know, I'm very, very intentional about participating in black women's circles. Okay. Right? That's the place where I go to heal. Um, and, and again, I cannot stress how intentional I am about either creating that space or finding that space. Are they comprised of those folks in the academy or outside of the academy or both? Sometimes they're both. Mm. Right? Sometimes they're both. Because each person adds something to the quilt that is needed for that quilt right so when i was at the um in rhode island we formed in zynga's gathering and it was just four black women different stages of life some in the academy some outside of the academy different ages we were all mothering um which was interesting um some of us had young children very young children then there is like me and one of the women who had older uh, you know older children and we came together and we really had these amazing conversations on what it means to be a black woman and how are we defining ourselves in a way again i keep coming back to this notion of truth right in a way that is is grounded in truth mm-hmm. so we talked about everything we talked about the work we did and how we can align the work that we are doing with how we imagine what we were sent here to do we talked about what it means to be an older black woman and not see yourself represented anywhere Mm-hmm. Um, because older, you know, we talk a lot about invisibility of black women, but we don't talk about how as we age, we become even less visible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about what it means to be, um, quote unquote, sexy um, as a black woman. Oh, we, we talk, you name it, we talk, and we still talk about it, even though we're kind of all scattered. Okay. Uh, but that is a type of of community building that I think is vital mm-hmm. for us to make it through. And when you read Bell Hooks and you read Audre Lorde, et cetera, they surrounded themselves with women, mm-hmm. right? They, they were intentional about finding communities and finding elders and sitting at their feet and listening and, and, and being vulnerable because that's part of the challenge, I think, 
um, for some of us in the academy, um, as we deal with isolation, it's hard for us to lay bare the things that matter to us in order to get support. But if we don't lay those things bare, then we're denying ourselves access to the type of support that we need. Yes. And that's why I think we need a wide range of people because no one group of individuals in a particular area will give you that. Okay. So you're now the chair of African American Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And I assume in your position and in your previous position at, at Providence that students have come to you or will come to you um, with pressing problems and also other faculty members will do so as well. Have you thought about in your in your capacity as chair how to integrate a radical self-care as part of maybe a mainstream education model? How What would it look like for example if this attention to radical self-care or part of um, an undergraduate education or part of a, a graduate school <laughs> graduate school education um, mm-hmm. or a doctoral program or something I know something something along those lines um, whether it be formally or informally have you thought about that, that, that as well so where I can in my classes I do try to expose my students to their truth Right? give them opportunities to grapple with their truth, which for me is, radical, again, radical self-care. And I do that in different ways. So, for example, when I teach um, women of color feminisms, we have a series of exercises in the class. And one of the things that I tell students, and this is where, for me, the radical self-care comes in, is that not everything is for consumption. I think in our society, we assume everything is for consumption. So everything we do has to be consumed by somebody else. And I'm like, no, everything is not for consumption. Sometimes things are simply just for you. Okay. Right? And that sometimes is such a hard notion for students to grapple with because they've lived most of their lives thinking everything has to be consumed, whether it's on social media or what have you. So that's one of the first places we start. Um, I, like I said, I also go through a series of exercises where we integrate movement in the class. So you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, it's a political science class. What are you talking about movement in the class? So I have my students use their bodies, for example, to articulate a theory or their interpretation of a concept or what have you. And that can look so different and it's so uncomfortable for students, particularly female students, because we're told that our bodies need to be contained, right? And with blackness a lot, we're told that the way that we're safe is to contain ourselves so that we also become less visible to those that might seek to harm us. So what happens in a classroom when you say to students, no, you are not contained. Your body is not going to be contained in this classroom. Mm-hmm. Right? So those are some of the ways that I've integrated um, radical self-care into my class. Um, I became known as a professor with the yoga mats because I would give okay. away yoga mats to my students, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got there by accident because sometimes students would come to me and honestly, I knew that I cannot help them um, because the stuff is beyond me. And I would always ask myself, what can I offer this student that might bring them a little moment of peace? 
Okay. Right? And this is why I think it's important to come back to your previous question about being in community, being in communion with each other, is that we need these moments in order to find peace, to, 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 for somebody to help soothe out the roughness of life. Right? And so one of the questions that I would always ask students when they come to me, and it's interesting, I just had a student come in and I asked her this question is, I would always ask two questions. How do you want to be? And what do you need? Yeah. You know what I found? What's that? Pe people cannot answer those questions because those aren't questions that we oftentimes ask. Okay. Right? What do you need? What do you need in this moment? Right? And I would always tell people, I might not be able to give it to you, but sometimes articulating it brings us closer to finding it. Okay. 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 Um, I have a couple more questions for you. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And this is uh, probably the more a more difficult question. A lot, a lot of us in the academy or a lot of... Um, maybe colleagues or people in, in, in our discipline, sometimes you may feel experience, you may experience um, shame or embarrassment, maybe because your article was rejected or because uh, you didn't get tenure. And um, however someone judged you may, it may be inaccurate um, and it may not be f uh, a fair way of assessing your talent. Um, so, so, when that shame emerges or embarrassment emerges, which which it shouldn't, which they shouldn't, how does one then use radical self care to to overcome that and to navigate the academy? I know, I know some folks, for example, who um, maybe they get tenure, but they're exceptionally talented. You're like, oh my goodness, how do they how did how do they get tenure? And maybe they're embarrassed, um, or they feel maybe sh shamed when they shouldn't. So how does then one use radical self-care to not let the academy be your final judge mm -hmm. of who you are and your talent and right. let let you and your and your network and your and your your spiritual dimension as a human being be be the final judges of who you are. Mm -hmm. So it took me a while to get here. I'm, again, I'm I'm tend to be brutally honest. I wasn't always in this space. But allowing those hurt feelings to exist without fighting them, right? Just recognizing them. You know, in this moment, I am hurt, and I am hurt because, mm -hmm. right? And then not really doing anything about it. Not trying to resist, not trying to hide, not wearing them. Every time they come up, say, okay, I recognize you as coming up with me, you know, or in me in this moment. I recognize this narrative. And then give yourself a little bit of time. I always say for me, it's a day or two. Then I sit with the narrative and I'm like, okay, this is a narrative that I'm hearing. What's an alternative narrative? Okay. That's grounded in truth, not grounded in some myth or a lie, right? But what's an alternative narrative? Because oftentimes what I have learned and what my experience has been is that our first response is not necessarily our true response. It's just a surface response, right? So there's something deeper beneath that. And we are able to better manage these experiences if we're honest about what's beneath that initial response. 
okay? So what narrative are you telling yourself? And is that the truth? Okay. Right? And again, and, and, I, and I keep repeating this, you have to ask yourself, now that A has happened, how do I want to be? And there are moments when I'm like, you know what, right now I want to be sad. Well, Julia, why do you want to be sad? I don't really have a reason. It just feels good. Okay, well, be sad and get over it. And then find, you know, what it is that you want to do. Now, here's the thing that I've also learned is that a lot of our pain um, is a little bit easier to carry when when we tell our truth. Now, that doesn't mean we have to tell our truth to the entire world. But this is where if you have that quilt of people you know within that quilt where to go to tell your truth where it will you know where that person will hold space for you without judgment without anything they're just going to let you be okay right they're not going to try to fix it they're not going to tell you how to be or anything like that they're just simply going to hold that moment for you okay right and again coming back to black feminist uh, writings we see that a lot um with work uh with the writings of of black feminist authors um it's it's a place to put that burden down right and we all need that and so we have got to release these things as opposed to holding them because when we hold them they're going to manifest in different ways so you might as well let it go okay because it's going to come out So you might as well exercise some agency about how you want to let it go. So I tell people, I don't have a problem feeling bad in the moment. Okay. Right? Just don't fight it. Mm-hmm. And then ask yourself, how do you want to be? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, my, um, my second to last question is, is what if one is an instigator of attack and mm-hmm. it, 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 particularly if if you may not know it um so me as a for example as a as a black man for example um i may have i may have attacked someone even if i didn't know it and uh, reproduce some of the same kinds of hierarchies that i i claim to want to 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 stop so how does how does radical self-care address the instigator, even mm-hmm. even one who is well-meaning, and um, maybe even some kind of quote unquote unknowing that they are actually the instigator. How does radical self-care deal with the instigator who's responsible for these attacks? And I'm talking mm-hmm. particularly talking about African Americans, or mm-hmm. um, who, um, and particularly men, for example, who may be the instigators of. Mm-hmm certain kinds of attacks that we claim to try to counter in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as I listen to you, I, I think about, and I've read this, and I can't remember where I read it, but when Martin Luther King Jr. went out to listen to primarily women who were part of the welfare rights um, movement, yes. you know, he started to, to talk, etc., and one of the women in the room looked at him and said, you don't know what you're talking about, do you? That, that's a true story, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, as the story goes, he paused and he said, no, I don't. 
right? I don't know why that has resonated with me all these years, but to me, it speaks to the fact, A, that none of us are perfect, right? So even though we might have good intentions, none of us are perfect, and we have to recognize that. But second, in our imperfect, knowing that we're not perfect, we have to be open to actually saying, no, I do not know. Mm -hmm. Or, you know what, maybe let me talk with you about what I did yesterday. And how did that make you feel? And then asking that person, that group of people, a question of, so what do you need now that has happened? Mm-hmm. What do you need? Right? Now that's hard. That is so hard in our society where we have not necessarily done a very good job around reciprocity. We have not done a very good job around notions of repair. Okay. Right? How to repair harm. We like to punish and we like to condemn, but we don't always want to repair. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. right and if you are in this position and something happens you know I always say okay you're not perfect so you forgive yourself for not being perfect then you have to again you know I sound like like a broken record you didn't have an opportunity to ask yourself how do I want to be Mm -hmm. what is a way of repairing this situation and you might not be able to go back in time and repair something that happened, you know, in the past, but you can think about repairing in the future. Mm-hmm. So you now have that consciousness, right? You now have that knowledge. And all of us are tasked with asking ourselves, now that we have knowledge, how do I want to use it? Yes. Right? Because especially in the academy, we pride ourselves on producing knowledge, but we treat it as this abstract thing, and we don't use the knowledge that we're producing to ask ourselves this question about how do we want to be now that we know what we know. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I get the sense as my last my last question is that, um, and I brought this up with another guest uh, who's working on academic writing retreats, is that. Uh, Radical self-care, as you see it, is getting to a deeper issue of it's a spirit. It's a spiritual dimension to it. Um, mm-hmm. may, maybe may, not in terms of orthodox religion, but spirituality as as maybe indigenous to uh, black women. I don't. I don't know. But um, and and that may be blasphemy in the academy where we we're, we're supposed to be empirical and um, and um, maybe non-emotional. Um, but is, is that what the radical self-care is trying to also address is, 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 is tying maybe a spiritual dimension of who we are to, to our profession as well? Right. So I think one of the things Western ideology has done, which to me is harmful, particularly to, to black folk, is try to divorce us um, from who we are. So the mind is divorced from the, the spirit, the mind is divorced from the body. And one of the ways it does this is, is it creates this notion that we're machines, right? So our job in the academy is to constantly produce in order and that's where our worth comes. <coughs> Thus publish our parish. <laughs> right. And there's very little thought about 
what it means to be a whole person. Mm-hmm. Right? We are not machines. Right. Personally, and where my radical self-care comes in, I refuse to act as though I'm a machine. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right? I am a multi-dimensional individual. And my job on this earth is to care for the various dimensions that make me a human being. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And yes, for me, that there is a spiritual component not understood, again, through Western ideology. Right? Um, but increasingly more and more understood through, um, through blackness, through womanness, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I bring those elements where I am mm-hmm. plus the altar in my previous office right plus the, the the kind of freedom jars that I create to kind of remind myself I am not a machine and I can resist this and all the work that I do is not for the academy to consume in the way that the academy wants to consume it if in fact my work is designed for freedom then I have to figure out what freedom means to me that doesn't mean I don't recognize that I'm working in structures that try to constrain me or purge me. But how, what is my understanding of freedom? And part of my understanding of freedom in the academy is not to divorce myself, not to divorce the different parts of me, but to choose to see me as a whole being. Mm-hmm. Where my mind matters, my body matters, and my spirit matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And when those three things are aligned, for me, I am free. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and my guess is that um, for those academicians who experience a lot of success, the success also shouldn't define who you are as well. So in other yeah. words, those who experience a lot of success, accolades, that, that radical self-care is still needed um, mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe to introduce humility into the, into the equation, but mm-hmm. radical radical self care is needed as well. Correct? Yes, yes. Our humanness is needed. Humanness. You know, I sometimes joke because um, I have a sick sense of humor, and I said my um, gravestone is not going to read, or my death certificate is not going to read death as a result of the academy. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I refuse to let this kill me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and when I say kill me, I don't necessarily mean physically kill me, although we see black women dying in the academy at what for me are alarming rates, and we're not talking about this, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but I'm also talking about, you know, kill me spiritually. Um, I refuse, and that therein lies my resistance. Mm-hmm. And folk don't always see that as resistance, or because it's not something you know. I don't carry around a placard, and I'm not out marching and protesting. Although I've done that where needed, um, but that is my resistance. That right. is my place of resistance. I will not die spiritually, physically, emotionally as a result of the academy, mm-hmm. right. because then I would not have lived a truth that was given to me before I walked into the academy. Because before I walked into the academy, I was a whole human being. Right. Right? Because we were sent here as whole human beings. Right. Right. Right? So why should I let any institution take that? Right. 
Right. So that's where a lot of my resistance comes in. Right. Well, I greatly appreciate your, your comments and your words. Um, I think it will be beneficial to many of us in the Academy, young and old, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of folks will benefit from your wisdom that you brought to us. So I thank you for participating in this, in this podcast. And uh, we hope to talk to you soon. Well, thank you, and thank you for the great work that you're doing, making real what so many of us experience. Thank you.